me, if you would, to the book of Revelation, would you? Revelation in the Word of God. Before you are dismissed, all the, ch- all the children can be dismissed. Four years old up through third grade. You can follow Mr. Ken out the back door. And uh, I want to say, you can be dismissed right now. Yeah. And I want to say a great big thank you to you for being here every single service. You know, we wouldn't have much of a meeting if you all didn't show up. And so I'm sure thankful that you've come and come out every night and invited. How many of you invited somebody this week that didn't come? Let me see your hand. You invited somebody that didn't come. Now, some would say that's that's a defeat, but I'd say that's a victory because you invited somebody. And that's very important to be always at it, inviting folks to Jesus and bringing folks to the Lord. And so you keep at it. Don't ever get discouraged when you invite someone to Jesus, invite someone to church if they don't respond. Remember, it's not high on an, uh, somebody that doesn't go to church. It's not high on their priority list. It's just not what they're thinking about. It's not what they're doing. It's, it, it's not very important to them. There are a lot of other things that are important. And, uh, and, and you and I were once there. So, so don't, don't get discouraged when you invite someone and they don't come. Just keep coming at it and keep inviting them. And say, you know, I know you had probably a lot, a lot going on this week during our revival, but we have a 50th anniversary celebration on Sunday and everybody in the whole town is going to show up. So you need to get there early so that you can get a seat and uh, just invite them and get them to come, you know, and uh, and and then say, well, yeah, I, I'm going to the lake then and I'm going to be gone then. or I, I've got some errands to run. I've got to wash my car then say, well, I, you know, I understand sometimes that takes the place on, on Sunday morning, but we are a church that offers options. That means we have Sunday night service. And so we have Sunday night service for all the people that are busy Sunday morning and for all the people that go to churches that don't have Sunday night service. That's what we have. We have options and lots of options. And then if you can't make it Sunday morning or Sunday night, we've got Wednesday night service at our church. So three times a week you can come to our church and we've got more options than Starbucks. And so, boy, I mean, telling you that that ought to motivate folks. okay? and just keep encouraging them. Don't ever get sour. Uh, it, it's easy to get sour, isn't it? Easy to get discouraged, easy to quit, just give up. I invited them before. They won't come. I invited them five times before. They won't come. I don't know what their problem is. And then you get mad and grouchy and you kick the cat and slam the door and yell at your wife and, and punch the wall and, and then nobody's happy. But don't get sour. Because usually when you get sour, you're on the way out. Of the way out of serving. And the way out of witnessing. And the way out of giving. And the way out of standing for the Lord. And, and you know, I believe there's two reasons why we don't reap. I believe there are a lot of farmers here that could verify the authenticity of what I'm about to say. Reason number one why we don't reap is because we don't sow. It's a scientifically proven fact. You know, you can say just about anything once you say that. It's a scientifically proven fact that if you don't sow, you won't reap. That's just fact. And so reason one, one why we don't reap is because we don't sow. Maybe we, we just haven't started sowing. But there are a lot of farmers right here in our midst right now that can verify this truth, that if you sow, you reap. And you reap what you sow. And you reap later than you sow. And you reap more than you sow. So sowing's not bad, sowing's good. And so let's sow. But reason number two why we don't reap is because we quit. We plant the seed in a field. And the second day, after nothing happens, we say, some seed. Those, those, those farm ag people, they promised me the world. Nothing's happening after two days. I quit. Now, now nobody, that, nobody that planted seed after two days would expect a harvest that knows anything about seed. You've got you to cultivate. You've got to keep the pests away. You've got to keep the weeds away. So a lot of times people sow and then they quit. Don't quit. Don't quit. You keep coming after it and coming after it and coming after it and coming after specific ones. Now, I'm glad for anybody that will go into a neighborhood and knock on all the doors in that neighborhood. But you know what's needed even more is for you to find somebody. Talk to that somebody. Never give up on that somebody. Take that somebody out to eat. Go do something uh, kind for that somebody. And after a while, they're like, who is this nut? I wish they'd leave me alone. And, and you won't leave them alone. That, that's what a good farmer will do. I'm not going to quit on this seed. And I'm not going to quit on this field. And I'm not going to quit on this tree. I'm just going to keep at it. And you know what happens after a while? There's fruit that's born. Somebody gave me a fig tree, two fig trees a few years ago. 
I think about seven years ago now, and one of them died. And I said, oh, there it goes. I hope that I possibly could have a cross-pollination, but now forget it. And I put the other one in the ground, and it was there, and it grew, and, and I think I moved it once maybe, and, and it kept growing. And it's been one year, two years, three years, four years, five years. Last year, we had just a few figs on it. This year, we couldn't keep up with all the figs. What, what, what if I'd have given up year number six? So keep coming. I have a friend that's a pastor, um, and he, he, I said to him, Brandon, I said, tell me how you got saved. He said, well, he said, my mom and dad were divorced. And he said, it was just me and my sister and mom. And he said, there was this old lady that was a neighbor, and she just kept bugging us and pestering us inviting us to church and she wouldn't quit and she just kept coming and coming and coming and coming and coming and finally I said mom let's just go to church to get her off our backs and they went to our church and they heard the gospel and they got saved and then he got called to preach and then he went off to Bible college now he's a pastor somewhere I guarantee you that 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 lady wasn't expecting all that she was just hoping to get him saved you see so don't give up don't quit because in due season we shall reap if we faint not. And so I want to encourage you just to keep at it. And if you don't go soul winning when the regular appointed times are, Tuesday or Thursday or Sunday or Wednesday, I don't know when it is around here, go. Go. You ought to start. You ought to make it a regular habit. I'm going to go soul winning. And if you can't show up on that night, say, Pastor, you know, I, I can't make it on that night, but is there an area you want me to go to? Is there, are there some visits you want me to make? I'll, I'll make a visit or two or I'll do whatever you want me to do. You, you tell me what to do. I'll go soul. And somehow I'm going to try to get the word out. And God will use that. And God will bless that. I found that there are three characteristics of a growing, going church in all the churches that I've been. I've preached over 850 revival meetings across this country. And so I've preached in dozens and hundreds of churches. And the three characteristics are these. Number one, the people, the people are missions minded. They, they care for missionaries. They they love missions. They want to get the gospel locally and around the world. Number two, the people are evangelistic. They go soul winning. They witness. They, they empty the track rack. You know, that's more than just a, uh, uh, just a decoration in the back. And they, they pass them out and they give the gospel everywhere they can. Number three, they take care of their pastor. And they take care of the preacher that God has given them and the preachers that come through. Those are three characteristics of the churches that I've seen that God blesses and God anoints and God uses in a mighty way. And I hope that this church will be that. And I hope it will be filled with Christians like that. I hope you'll pray for us. Uh, we, we leave uh, tomorrow and head up to Minnesota. I'm going to drop Ken off and then I'm going to go down to South Carolina and preach this weekend in a soccer uh, competition, soccer tournament tomorrow or Saturday, and then preach all, all day Sunday there in Greenville at Freedom Baptist Church. And then I'm coming back up to Minnesota and we're going to have a tent meeting in Andover, Minnesota. It's a northern suburb. And so we really are excited and praying about what the Lord would have us do in that regard. And uh, we, we think that we have the permit process well on its way. And it needs to be well on its way because it's two weeks before we start preaching. And we'll have a week of prep and pray, prayer and soul winning. And then we'll have two weeks of preaching in Andover, Minnesota. So if you know anybody up that way, tell them to come to the tent right at the corner of Hanson and Jay. And just ask God to help us. We really need God's help as we travel from place to place. But... I just want to personally thank you. Thank you for having me, Pastor. Thank you for coming every night. Thank you for all the good piano playing, Miss Elaine, and all those that have worked in the nursery and helped, and all those that have been involved in this meeting. We're very, very grateful, and I appreciate your prayers as we travel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the mighty power of it. I pray in Jesus' name that you'd fill me with your spirit and that you'd help me. Help me to preach tonight with all that I have and all that I am. And I pray that Jesus would be seen. I pray that he would be glorified. I pray that he would be magnified in everything that's said and done tonight. And Lord, we'll be careful to thank you for what you do because we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5 is where our Bibles are open. Revelation chapter 5 in the Word of God. I want to draw our attention tonight to a question in verse number 2. Revelation chapter 5 and verse number 2. The question is, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof. Now all of heaven is focused on the throne. The church has been raptured. In Revelation chapter 5, it says, I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. 
And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the lamb having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. And they sung a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne. And the beast and the elders and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing and every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto Him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped Him that liveth forever and ever. I want to preach to you tonight on the subject, Is Jesus worthy of that? Is Jesus worthy of that? Is our precious Lord, our Savior, our God, our King, is He worthy of that? Now the Bible says in this passage of Scripture that there was a question asked in verse number 2, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And under inspiration, John the Revelator writes these words, no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And John the Revelator writes, I wept much because no man was worthy. And someone said, weep not, weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book. Now in this passage, the lion of the tribe of Judah is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who was pierced through on the cross. He's the one who is described in the next verse as the lamb, the lamb as it had been slain. He was slain before the foundation of the world. And so we're speaking of the one and the same, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. He is the one we speak of tonight when we ask, is Jesus Christ worthy of that? Is Jesus Christ worthy of that? And I hope you come with your page-turning fingers tonight. We're going to go to just a few pages in the Word of God to ask this question and to answer this question, is Jesus Christ worthy of that? Turn with me, please, to Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14 in the Word of God. In Isaiah chapter 14, before, I believe, before the fall of man, of course it was before the fall of man, and could very well have been before all, all that was created in earth was created, but here in Isaiah chapter 14, the Bible describes the son of the morning, Lucifer. Notice, please, what the Scripture says in Isaiah 14. And verse 12, it says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Now this is Lucifer. 
He is the crowning angel. He is the one who is in charge of all the worship in heaven. He is the most beautiful angel. In the book of Ezekiel, the Bible says that in him were precious stones of topaz and, and, and carbuncle and all kinds of beautiful stones all throughout his body. He, was, he had beautiful musical instruments built into his very being. I don't know exactly what that means, but I know that Lucifer was something to behold. And Lucifer was something to listen to. And Lucifer was in charge of all of the music in heaven and in charge of worshiping God in heaven and he was close to God he saw the glory of God he was in charge of directing the angelic choirs of heaven to sing of God's greatness and God's matchless worth and yet it wasn't enough Lucifer had to have more Lucifer was filled with his own pride Lucifer wanted something that didn't rightfully belong to him he wanted more control and more power. He wanted more of what he could not have. And so he said, someday I'm going to stand above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Notice God's response in verse 15. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. I want to ask you a question tonight. Is Jesus Christ worthy of that? Worthy of that pride? Worthy of that arrogance? Is Jesus Christ worthy of that betrayal and worthy of that wicked, wicked one, the Lucifer, the son of the morning, who would not only betray the son of God and not only would he lead a coup against him, but he would lead one third of the angelic hosts to rebel against the king of kings. I'm asking tonight, is Jesus Christ worthy of that? When Lucifer lifted up his heart in pride against the Lord. The Lord was having none of it. And so he cast Lucifer and one third of the angels out of heaven. And they began to roam to and fro across the face of the earth to perform such dastardly deeds. I want to ask, is Jesus Christ worthy of that? Worthy of his name being besmirched? Worthy of his glory being uh, uh, attacked and affronted? Take your Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 3, would you? Genesis chapter 3 in the word of God. I want you to see in this beautiful, perfect utopia what we call and what we now know as the Garden of Eden. Here we have Adam and Eve, God's crowning, crowning work of His creation. He said to all of His creation it was good. And then He created Adam and Eve and the Scripture says He breathed into Adam the breath of life and man became a living soul. He gave Adam intelligence so Adam would name all the creatures. He gave Adam responsibility so Adam would tend to the garden. He gave Adam opportunity. He could eat of every tree of the garden and of every tree he could freely eat. He could go to the strawberry patch. He could go to the pineapple patch. He could go to the banana tree and the mango orchard. He could go to the apple orchard and the pecan grove. He could go anywhere he wanted and have whatever he wanted. And he had Eve there to enjoy it with. But the Bible says that Lucifer met Eve in the garden. And as he met her in the garden, he began to question and undermine what God had said. He said, yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. He began to question the word of God sufficiently so that she added to and took away from the word of God. And then Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 6 rings loud and clear. Notice the scripture, it says, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. Now, a pail of death and shame settles over the garden. Now, Adam and Eve instantly know their nakedness. Now, Adam and Eve have invited sin and sadness and sickness into this world and they could never have imagined all the tragedy that they would bring. I want to ask you a question tonight. Is Jesus Christ worthy of that? Is He worthy of that disobedience that Adam and Eve put forth in the garden? Is He worthy of that distrust and mistrust that they conveyed? Is he worthy of that, 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 that desire on their own part to be as gods knowing good and evil? Is Jesus Christ the King of Kings and the creator of Adam and Eve worthy of that? Turn one page later to Genesis chapter 4 and you find Adam and Eve's sons, Cain and Abel, offering a sacrifice. They knew it was the time of sacrifice. They knew this was where they were to sacrifice. And ladies and gentlemen, they knew how to sacrifice. But Cain decided he was going to do something different than what God wanted. 
In Genesis chapter 4, the Bible says in verse 3, in process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain. And to his offering he had not respect. Now why did Cain's offering get rejected and Abel's offering get received? Because Cain's was a bloodless sacrifice. And Abel's was a bloody sacrifice. Now you mark this down. Religion has always hated God's way of salvation. They're never satisfied with just doing their own thing. They've got to scorn. They've got to slander. They've got to do everything they can to undermine God's way of salvation. And when Cain brought the fruit basket that he got down at the local Walmart and he brought it before the Lord and undid the ribbon and took aside the cellophane, he thought that maybe God would be pleased. But he knew full well that God was not going to be pleased. He knew full well that God would only accept the bloody death of a substitute. And I want to say this to you, if you're here tonight and you're not saved, the only thing that God will accept as currency in payment for your sin is death. That's the only sacrifice or the only, the only appropriate payment he will accept. He won't accept your good works. He won't accept your fruit basket. He won't accept the fruit of the ground. He will only accept the bloody death of a substitute. And that's why all throughout the Old Testament, you find lambs and he goats and bullocks and rams being offered. And when Jesus comes, he's called the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. When Jesus died, he became the, the one, the lamb, the one that would offer himself as a sacrifice and a substitute. He could not have bled without dying. He could not have died without bleeding. Jesus Christ is the one who is the ultimate sacrifice. But Cain would have nothing of it. And Cain was upset at Abel, just trying to find his own way to God, trying to get his own way to God. And when he offered that fruit basket for a sacrifice, God did not have respect unto it. And I ask the question there, when Cain offers this fruit basket to God, no bloody death, no lamb as God had required. Is Jesus Christ worthy of that? Our own good works? Our own, our own labors? Our own efforts? Is he worthy of that? Take your Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 6. We find as we're moving along quickly tonight through the pages of history, what is taking place. And in Genesis chapter 6, the Bible tells us that something very evil and very sinister is taking place. It says in verse number 2 that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. In the very next verse, the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man. For that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be in hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, that they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. Now there's something very sinister taking place in Genesis 6. I personally do not believe this is the godly line of Seth. I believe this was at the very least demon-possessed men, if not demons themselves, trying to pollute the promised seed of Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 15. You say, preacher, that's not possible. In heaven, angels are neither married nor given in marriage. That's true. But when have the demons ever followed the rules? They haven't. As a matter of fact, as early as two or three weeks ago, uh, Fox and Disney came out with a show on, on how you can go to bed with the devil. An adult cartoon. So the demons are still at it and they're glad to pervert it. By the way, every sexual perversion is, is abominable to God. And God has designed that intimate physical act for a man and a woman who are married. Inside the boundaries of marriage, it is good, it is right, it is holy, it is pure, it is a blast. But outside the boundaries of marriage, it is wicked, it is, uh, it is under God's judgment, and it Everything from pornography all the way to any kind of perverted act that you can imagine. And that, I believe, is what is taking place in Genesis chapter 6. Because the devil doesn't know who would be the promised seed of Genesis 3.15. So he's trying to pollute all of the seed. And he takes the sons of God and they, these demons or demon-possessed men at the very least are going into the daughters of men and they're producing some kind of superhuman 
some kind of giant. By the way, did you know that Josephus, the historian, puts all the Greek gods and deities in Genesis chapter 6? Now, he's not inspired, but that is noteworthy. And what is taking place is wicked. In verse number 3, we noted what the Bible says, that the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man. In verse 5, it says, God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So already two times in five verses, there's something negative that is, is grievous to God. Verse 6, it says, It repented the Lord that He'd made man on the earth. So now you have three times in just six verses. And it grieved Him at His heart. In verse 7, it says, I will, The Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. All right, in seven verses, you have four verses devoted wholly to something negative, sinister, vile, wicked that grieves God and makes God angry and invites his judgment. This could not possibly be the godly line of Seth. And I want to simply say here in Genesis chapter 6 that what is taking place is something vile. And these giants are an attempt by the devil not only to pollute the promised seed, but to intimidate God's people. By the way, even after the flood, he was still at it. Who are the giants after the flood? The Anakims, Goliath, and his five brothers. Yeah, or his four brothers. And, and what was he doing? He was trying to intimidate. By the way, for all of you tall men out there, me and Pastor Ivan aren't intimidated at all. We're just not. We're just not. And uh, I try to teach my boys who come by their height, honestly, that tall is not all. And uh, if you get if you get too if you get us too upset, we're just going to bite your kneecap off. And just so just so you know, we we have a strategy here, and it, and it's and it's ready to be triggered at any particular moment. But I want you to know. I want to ask the question as God looks down upon the earth and sees these giants, and sees the pollution of the pro, uh, attempted pollution of the promised seed, and sees the wickedness of man. They woke up in the morning and they thought about wickedness. They went throughout their day and they thought about wickedness. They went to bed at night and they dreamed about wickedness and well, the Bible uses the word imagination now I believe God is for creativity and he is for ingenuity and he is for us using our minds to create wonderful things but every time the word imagination is used in the Bible it's in a negative light I think it's six or seven times there's not one time that imagination is used in a positive light and now the wickedness of men's heart is evil. They're filled with violence, the Bible says. Noah was not having anything to do with it. He had trusted the Lord as his Savior. He was going on for God. But I want to ask you a question. As God looked down on the wickedness of man and, and saw all of this wickedness, I want to ask, is Jesus Christ, the creator of heaven and earth, and the creator of mankind, worthy of that? Take your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11 we're going to just touch on a few moments in the Bible, but I want to ask this question and get it ingrained in our heart so that we never forget. And I want, I want, I want so very much us to ask this question, is he worthy of that? Genesis chapter 6, verse 1, the whole earth was of one language and of one speech, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there, and they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick, and burn them throughly. And they had made brick for stone, and slime had they for mortar. And they said, go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they begin to do, and now nothing shall be restrained from them, which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Now this is not the focus of my message, but since we're here, the Bible says they're using brick. Brick in the Bible is a picture of man's ingenuity and might. It's really a picture of humanism. It's a picture of man's intelligence and man's strategy and man's engineering marvels. Stone was what they used to build the temple. God made stone. They didn't use brick to make the temple. But brick is what they're using to build this, what we call a ziggurat. It was a, it was a tower to reach unto God. And you said, preacher, what was God's beef with this people at this time? I'll tell you what his beef was. He was nowhere to be found. He was nowhere consulted. Men were trying to get to heaven without God. 
Do you want to hear the sermon that I heard in Bible college, that me and Brother Yoda heard in Bible college by a preacher named Brother Brooks? It was a seven-word sermon against TV. Are you ready to hear it? It's a seven-word sermon against TV. He said, you want to hear my seven-word sermon against TV? Well, none of us had ever in our entire lives heard a seven-word sermon. So we were just interested in any kind of seven-word sermon. We thought maybe he wasn't a Baptist when he heard he had a seven-word sermon. And so he said, I'm going to preach to you right now a seven-word sermon on TV. And he did what I'm doing right now. He kept over and over and over repeating it. And he kept asking us if we wanted to hear it until we finally were sitting on the edge of our seat saying, say it already. He said, here's my seven-word sermon against TV. It presents life as normal without God. And that was the sin of the people of Babel. They were trying to get to heaven without God. And God said, I'm having none of it. I want to ask you, as these people are worshiping and they're sacrificing and they're building and they're making great headway and as they're busying their lives, is Jesus Christ worthy of that? Is Jesus Christ worthy of the idolatry that would go on in the Old Testament? God would call for Himself a man by the name of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and He would make of him a great nation and Abraham would follow the Lord and He would bear a son, a miraculous son, Isaac. He called him laughter and Isaac would bear a son named Jacob and Jacob would bear several sons, one of whom would be Judah and it would be through Jacob's sons that God would bring the promised seed and it was the children of Israel that God selected. They would be in, in Israel or in Canaan for a while then they would go down to Egypt so that they could continue on and they could live their life and then 430 years later God would rescue them out of Egypt he would perform one miracle after another after another for the children of Israel through the wilderness wanderings you would find them and they would complain and they would gripe and bellyache and murder and, and, and murmur they would murmur in, in, in the book of Exodus chapter number uh, 14 they would murmur in Numbers chapter 11 they would murmur in Numbers chapter 14 they would murmur in Numbers chapter 21 though God had provided for them and God had blessed them I want to ask is Jesus Christ worthy of murmuring is he worthy of our complaining is he worthy of our griping and our belly aching and our indifference towards his supply and our ungrateful attitude is Jesus Christ worthy of that then God, in spite of all of that, would show them mercy. He would bring them into the land of Canaan. Even after they had shown unbelief, 40 years they'd wander in the wilderness. But there came a day when Joshua was in charge in Joshua chapter 1 and 2 and 3 that he would bring them into the land of promise over the river Jordan conquering the land and the city of Jericho. And there you find Achan hiding a little gold for himself, hiding a little silver for himself, hiding a goodly Babylonian garment for himself, coveting and taking them and hiding them. I want to ask, is Jesus Christ worthy of that? Is Jesus Christ worthy of what would happen at the beginning of Judges when the Bible says the children of Israel disobeyed the Lord and the end of Judges, when the Bible says every man did that which is right in his own eyes, is Jesus Christ worthy of that? Then the kings would come and Saul would become the first king and then David and then Solomon and then Rehoboam and then the nation would be divided. Only four kings into it and the nation would be divided. Jeroboam would lead the ten tribes to the north and Rehoboam would lead the two tribes to the south and there would be Israel and Judah from that moment forward. There was not one king in all of Israel that was a good king. There were some kings in the southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin that were good and some that were idolatrous. The Bible speaks of Ahab who was an idolatrous king of Israel. The Bible speaks of Manasseh who was an idolatrous wicked king in Judah. The Bible speaks of these kings and I want to ask you a question. After God had sent prophets to warn them and sent prophets to plead with them, they still turned their back and they hardened their heart. And in 2 Chronicles chapter number 32, the Bible says that they hardened their heart against the Lord. Is Jesus Christ worthy of that? So that finally God had to send judgment and Babylon would come and invade Israel and take the Israelites into captivity and take them there for years and years and years and desolate, make desolate the land of Israel and the land of Judah. God said, you're not going to honor me in your Sabbaths. You're not going to honor me in your year of Jubilees. You're not going to honor me in my commandments. I will be honored. Is Jesus Christ worthy of all that idolatry that was in the life of Israel? Or the idolatry that's in the church today. There would be 400 years of silence 
after God's last stroke of judgment would come against Israel. Between Malachi and Matthew. Let that sink into your mind. America's not even 400 years. We're right at 240. We're not even close. Just a teenage pup. 400 years when God wasn't preaching through His prophets. 400 years when you wouldn't be able to get in your car and come to a church service like this when you'd have a preacher that would care for you and a preacher that would call on you and a preacher that would preach God's Word to you. 400 years! Generation after generation after generation. And then while the Roman, Roman government and empire was expanding its reach in a little town of Bethlehem, the Christ child was born. He came into this world the Bible says we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And he was born, he said, he was born in a manger, in a stable, in a lowly place, in a lowly birth he was born. No silk satin sheets, no trumpeter sounding his coming. He was born in a lowly place and he was born to peasants really that didn't have hardly anything and to a, 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 to a, 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 a virgin girl named Mary who for the rest of her life would say this birth, they would say, was illegitimate. When Mary knew in her heart this birth was supernatural. Jesus Christ walked across the face of this earth for 33 and a half years. He said foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay His head. I ask you tonight, is Jesus Christ worthy of that? His disciples would forsake Him. Judas Iscariot would betray Him. Peter would deny Him. Is Jesus Christ worthy of that? The Pharisees would stir up the mob against the Son of God and they would stir up this crowd of the Israelites in that day and the Jews to cry, crucify Him, crucify Him, crucify Him. Is Jesus Christ worthy of that? He went to the cross and they, bear, they poured upon Him one stripe after another until from His neck down to His knees, His back and His legs were covered in stripes. Is Jesus Christ worthy of that? They placed a crown of thorns upon His head and beat it down upon His brow until blood began to spurt down His face. They blindfolded Him and beat Him with their hands and with their fists and slapped Him with their open palms and cried, Prophesy! Who smote thee? Is Jesus Christ the Son of God worthy of that? The King of kings, the Creator of the world, the One who sustains and holds this world together? Is Jesus Christ the darling Lamb of God worthy of that? Jesus Christ would be nailed to a cross. That cross would be lifted in the air and it would come down into the ground with a thud and pull every one of His bones in His body out of joint. I ask tonight, is Jesus Christ worthy of that? He would rise again the third day and His disciples would be encouraged by His words and then they would span across the globe preaching and people would be saved. And Paul the Apostle, who was once called Saul of Tarsus, became a persecutor of the church and he began to persecute the church in Acts 7 and Acts 8 and Acts 9. The Bible says he made havoc of the church. I want to ask, is Jesus Christ worthy of that? Well, in Acts 9, he gets saved and the whole thing turns around and the church of God begins to go all over Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. And for 75 years, the church would spread around the then known empire called Rome over into what is Asia Minor, now Greece and Turkey, over up into Antioch, over into Rome, over into Asia and Bithynia and other places down into Africa. And the church of Jesus Christ would spread across the globe preaching and then then 75 years later coldness crept in look at our text revelation chapter number two and three would you notice please what the bible says revelation chapter two and three in revelation two he indicts the church of ephesus though they were a good church and a busy church and a laboring church and they were a doctrinally pure church he said in verse four nevertheless i have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love and you know these churches, each one of them were actual individual churches that represents in some way a, a pattern that a church today can develop. We can be busy for the Lord. We can serve the Lord. We can walk with the Lord and yet leave our first love. I want to say you can serve Him without loving Him, but you cannot love Him without serving Him. 
Brother Yoder and I were in the parking lot last night of the restaurant. We were talking and we were talking about how sometimes in our kind of churches, if we're not careful, we put these list of rules and we put these expectations on people and they become burdens to bear. But if we'll show people how much God loves them and how much they can love the Lord, if you'll light the fire of love, service will be a natural byproduct. There's no such thing. There's no better advertisement than a satisfied customer. Now this church has left its first love. They're busy. They're pure. They know the difference between right and wrong. But they've left their first love. Is, is Jesus Christ worthy of that? Look at our text in Revelation chapter number 2. He speaks to the church in Smyrna. And then He speaks to the church in Smyrna. And He says in verse 14, I have a few things against thee. Because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat the things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. And that was a doctrine that put the preacher up on a pedestal. He could do no wrong. He could never be questioned. God said, I hate that. Is Jesus Christ the only one who can sit on the throne? And the only one who has rights to rule? Is he worthy of that? He speaks here of the church of Thyatira and he speaks of the church in the Thyatira and said that they had allowed Jezebel to teach and seduce her servants. Is Jesus Christ worthy of that? He speaks of the church in the next chapter of Sardis. They had a name that thou livest that they were dead. In other words, they used to go soul winning and they used to tell people about Jesus and they used to invite folks to the Lord and they used to preach and they used to point others to Jesus, but now they're just dead. They had the name that thou, they lived, but they were dead. Well, I'll tell you, I've been in a few dead churches. I mean, it's a pain. It's a misery to go to church. The life isn't there in the song service. The life isn't there in the worship service. The life isn't there in the preaching. The life isn't there in the praying. The life isn't there in the fellowship before and after. The life isn't there in their desire to get out souls because it doesn't look like they have any desire to go after souls. I want to ask, is Jesus Christ worthy of a lifeless church? Is Jesus Christ worthy of that? He speaks on in Revelation chapter 3 and he indicts the church of Laodicea. And he says, you're neither cold nor hot. Now sometimes we say cold is good and hot is, or cold is bad and hot is good. No, in that passage he's saying cold is good and hot is good. Cold is good like you would get a cold drink on a hot day. Or hot is good like you would get a hot drink on a cold day. But he said, now, as their aqueducts brought the water all the way down from the mountains, by the time it got down to Laodicea, that city, it was neither hot nor cold. And they understood the analogy. And he said to them, he said, you're neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot, but because you're lukewarm, I'll spew you out of my mouth. Verse number 17, because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Do you know there's only one thing worse than as a Christian being wretched and poor and miserable and blind and naked? It's being wretched, poor, miserable, blind and naked and not knowing it. And not caring. Is Jesus Christ worthy of not caring? Is Jesus Christ worthy of lukewarmness? 75 years after Jesus said, go to this church, he had to say, repent. The last words of Jesus to the disciples and to his church were not go. No, no. The last words of Jesus to his disciples were repent. Why? Because in 75 years, somewhere along the line, some of them had got off track. Some of them had left their first love. Some of them had forgotten pure doctrine. Some of them had grown lukewarm to the Lord. I ask tonight, is Jesus Christ worthy of that? But that's just the bad side. Way back in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve had learned how to sacrifice and to offer a sacrifice and they'd passed it down to their sons, one of whom got hold of it. His name was Abel. And when he offered a sacrifice, it wasn't the fruit of the ground, it was a lamb. And it was a blood sacrifice. And when he offered that sacrifice, it was with care, and it was with honor, and it was with worship. I ask you, is Jesus Christ worthy of that? In Genesis chapter 12, when God called Abraham a 75-year-old man, by the way, is there anybody 75 here tonight? He was 75 years old. Is that qualify, Brother Forsberg, as the prime timers? 
would Abraham be a prime timer? Would he be right in that category? Okay. Oh, he'd be a prime timer. He was 75 years of age when God called him out of Ur of the Chaldees. And you know what Abraham did? He dropped everything and followed the Lord. Followed him all the way over the fertile crescent and down into the land of Canaan. He didn't know where he was going. He didn't have any GPS. He didn't have any readout. He didn't have any star reviews. He didn't have anything but the Lord. And the Lord led him and he got down there and Abraham began to worship and follow the Lord. And it was 75, 80, 85, 90, 95, 100 before God fulfilled his promise. But Abraham, he did not falter at the promise of God. And he followed the Lord all the way to the end. And even though Sarah laughed within herself saying it's just not possible, God showed he had the last laugh. And Abraham and Sarah at one point held a baby in their arm that was the promised seed through whom all the nations of the world would be blessed. And that continued on to Isaac and Jacob and Judah and all the way down through the generations. Is Jesus Christ worthy of them following Him? Oh yes, He is. Is He worthy of their worship? Oh yes, He is. Not everybody in Israel followed into idolatry. Not everybody in Israel succumbed to wickedness. There was a remnant all the way through the Judean and Israeli hills, all the way through, through the tabernacle and then to the temple that worshiped God. There were prophets that would stand for the things of God and Elijah would preach the word of God. And even when he thought he was the only one left serving God, God said there are 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. I want to ask, is Jesus Christ worthy of that? Is Jesus Christ worthy of a refusal to bow to the idolatry of the day? I'd say He is. Is Jesus Christ worthy of our worship? I'd say He is. And then later, David David would, would be the king and David would prepare for the temple to be built and Solomon would build the temple and the priests would gather around and some would lift their trumpets to blow their horns and the Shekinah glory of God nestled down and settled down in that temple so that the priest had no breath left in them. And they couldn't worship the Lord because His presence was so great. They couldn't even utter a word. They couldn't even blow a note because of the sweet presence of God. I want to ask, is Jesus Christ worthy of that? Is He worthy of those who have faithfully followed Him all through the Old Testament and the prophets like Malachi and Obadiah and Jonah and Zechariah? Is Jesus Christ worthy of that? Those prophets who were stoned and those prophets who were beheaded, is Jesus Christ worthy of that devotion? When John the Baptist stood in the Judean hillside and pointed to Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world, is Jesus worthy of that? I say He is. John the Baptist had Jesus come to him and Jesus said baptize me and John the Baptist says I have need to be baptized of thee and comest thou to me he said I'm not worthy to loose your shoe latchet and Jesus said suffer it to be so now for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness and John the Baptist baptized him is Jesus Christ worthy of that service and devotion that John the Baptist would carry not only there in the Jordan River but up out of the Jordan River until all those who are following John the Baptist left and His church dwindled down to nothing. And Jesus' church became the number one thing and the main attraction. Some of John the Baptist's disciples came to Him and they said, they're all following Jesus. And John said, I'm not the bridegroom. I'm just the porter that opens the door for the bridegroom. I'm just a friend of the bride. He said, He must increase, but I must decrease. Is Jesus Christ Worthy of that? That kind of devotion that would take John the Baptist to stand against the wickedness of Herod and cause his head to be lopped off? Is Jesus Christ worthy of that? Is Jesus Christ worthy of those disciples who though they forsook Him and denied Him, eventually came back to Him and then gave their life for Him? Every one of the eleven disciples and then twelve including Paul the Apostle Every one of them gave their life as a martyr for Jesus Christ's cause. Is He worthy of that? Is He worthy of those faithful ones who throughout the ages and throughout the early church and throughout the last 2,000 years have followed Him faithfully? Is He worthy of those who gave their lives in the northern northern hills of Italy, the Waldensians? Is He worthy of those who gave themselves up as they were persecuted and put to death by the soldiers is Jesus Christ worthy of that is he worthy of the reformers who discovered grace alone and faith alone and scripture alone and they stood for the Lord at great risk of their
their life? Is he worthy of that? Is he worthy of those who stood and preached, thus saith the Lord in the first and the second and the third great awakenings in our country and thousands came to Jesus Christ? Is he worthy of the missionaries who have gone to far off lands and labored far and wide and sometimes alone in difficult places and sometimes with very little fruit until after they're gone and after their blood is spilled as martyrs in the earth and there's come soul great of fruit. Is Jesus Christ worthy of that? Is He worthy of every church that will stand this Sunday from the Dateline out in the Pacific somewhere and for the next 24 hours all the way around the globe church after church after church, small and large in a little grass hut somewhere and in a very beautiful city somewhere in a beautiful auditorium somewhere and in a rock or a cave somewhere, hiding in some Chinese house somewhere or in some Afghani little desert somewhere and they'll worship Jesus and they'll bow down on their knees and they'll lift their hands and they'll praise the Son of God and for 24 hours Jesus Christ will get praise after praise and honor after honor and glory after glory and thousands upon thousands of people will be saved this Sunday the world over is Jesus Christ worthy of that? I say that He is. And we come now to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5 when they stand before the Lord and the one asks, is anyone worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth Neither under the earth was able to open the book and look upon that book. Of all the kings, they could find no one worthy. Of all the soldiers, they could find no one worthy. Of all the inventors, they could find no one worthy. Of all the academics, they could find no one worthy. Of all the saints, they could find no one worthy. Of all the philosophers, they could find no one worthy. And John the Revelator, he wept because no one was found worthy to open and to read the book. And one of the elders said, hold on just a minute here. There's someone who's worthy. Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seals thereof. And there the Lamb of God, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, opened the book and began to read it. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he took hold of that book, the four beasts and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb and they worshipped Him. Is Jesus Christ worthy of that? And they began to sing a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For Thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by Thy blood. Is He worthy of that? And He's made us unto God kings and priests and we shall reign in the earth. Is He worthy of that? And then the Scripture says the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beast and the elders and the number of them was ten thousand thousand, ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands. And with a loud voice they sing, worthy is the Lamb. It's going to be some kind of choir. Hey, don't you mistake it. It's not going to be a worship team. <laughs> it's going to be a choir of ten thousand times ten thousand angels and it's going to sound like a sound of many waters. And then it says every creature in heaven, every creature, that means the birds of the air. That means the angels. Every creature on earth. Every creature under the earth. That means the animals and the beasts and the whales and the dolphins and the fish. Every creature that's under the earth in one great unified choir are going to lift their voices and they're going to sing blessing and honor and glory and power be unto Him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. Wow. And this is only Revelation 5. Now the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, is going to unleash His wrath upon a world that has turned its fist upward. And for the next several chapters, all the way to chapter 10, and all the way to chapter 15, and all the way to chapter 17 and 18, God's wrath is going to be poured out against a world in the time period we know as the tribulation. Take your Bible quickly and turn with me to Revelation chapter 19, would you? Revelation chapter 19, I'll not tarry long. In Revelation chapter 19, Antichrist 
is going to have reigned on the earth for seven years. It looks like three and a half years of somewhat peace, although the vials will begin to be poured out and judgments will begin to fall. Do you know that during the tribulation, God's going to destroy all the grass? Did you know that He's going to turn one-third of the waters to blood? Did you know that He's going to destroy one-third of the trees? Did you know that at some point He's going to drop 180-pound hailstones from the sky that are not just fire or not just ice, but they're fire? And He's going to decimate this earth. All the while, Antichrist is holding on, saying, there's no inflation here. All the while, Antichrist is going to say, there's nothing to see here. And then in Revelation chapter 19, after Antichrist has marched into the valley of Armageddon himself, and after the armies of the east have failed to destroy Israel, and the armies of the north have failed to destroy Israel, and the armies of the south have failed to destroy Israel, and the armies of the west have failed to destroy Israel, Antichrist is going to ride into the valley of Megiddo and say, if you want to get a job done, you've got to do it yourself. And he's going to be there riding a horse, trying some way in his own power to do battle against Israel. And then watch what happens. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. And I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire. And on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, and out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, and with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress, and the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. He is worthy. Our Savior is the one who was pierced at the cross. He is worthy. Our Savior is the one that was buried in the grave. He is worthy. Our Savior is the one who rose again the third day. He is worthy. Our Savior is the one who receives the book and opens it. The Lion of the tribe of Judah and the Lamb which was slain. And now He's the one coming back to do battle royale against the Antichrist. And then He's going to march through the eastern gate the one that's got cement blocks all up to the top to the bottom. He's going to march right through that and he's going to come and reign for 1,000 years on this earth. Bind the devil. Put him in a bottomless pit for 1,000 years and at the end, loose him. He'll have, unexplicably so, still ability and power over some people to rally a rebellion against King Jesus and then God says, that's it. I'm done. In Revelation 20.10, he takes the devil and he casts him into the lake of fire. In Revelation 20.15, He takes those who are not found written in the book of life and cast them into the lake of fire. And in Revelation 21, there's a new heaven and a new earth and there's total peace and there's no more devil and there's Jesus Christ reigning and we will serve Him and worship Him. Is He worthy of that? Is He worthy of all the devotion that we could give Him? Is He worthy of every step of faithfulness we could offer Him? Is He worthy of our repentance of sin? Is He worthy of our willingness to forsake all and follow Him? Is He worthy of us living right now circumspectly so that He is pleased? Is He worthy of us lining our lives according to the Word of God? Is He worthy of us telling everyone we can about Jesus so that they'll trust Him before it's too late? Yes! He is worthy! He is worthy! He is worthy of all of this! Would you bow with me in prayer? Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. I thank you for your attention tonight. And I wonder with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you said, preacher, I must say as you've been preaching, God's pricked my heart and shown me some way either through Israel's example or through the church's example in Revelation 2 and 3. Where I'm living a life that I must say Jesus Christ is not worthy of that. I'm saved. I'm on my way to heaven. But there's some area where you could point or the Lord could point to and say, am I worthy of that? My answer would have to be a shameful no. If that's you, Sir Preacher, would you pray for me that I'd get that right? Would you slip up your hand right now? Thank you. Good. Praise the Lord. Is there anyone else? Thank you. Yes. God bless you. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. 
I want to ask how many of you would say, Brother Dwight, I, I'm saved, but tonight as you've been preaching, God's spoken to my heart about someone that needs to hear how worthy Jesus is. Someone that I need to tell how worthy Jesus is. Some way I need to point someone to Jesus. Preacher, would you pray for me that God would give me courage to go to that someone and give them the gospel and tell them how Jesus died and was buried and rose again for them? If that's you, would you slip up your hand right now? Good. Thank God. Amen. Praise the Lord. Maybe it's a co-worker. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a neighbor. Whoever it is that God is speaking to you about tonight, please, before you leave this place, promise the Lord that you'll speak to them in the next week. Maybe it'll be over coffee. Maybe it'll be with an email to start. Maybe it'll be face to face. But whatever we do, we must not delay. Question number three, how many of you would say, Brother Dwight? I'm not perfect, but I know I'm saved. And there has been a time in my life when I've accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. If you don't know that, don't raise your hand. But if you do, would you slip your hand up high? Preacher, I know that I'm saved. And if I died tonight, I'd go to heaven. Thank you. I put your hands down. Is there anyone here in this place that say, Preacher, I don't know. I need to know. I want to know, but I don't know. Would you pray for me? Yes. If that's you, would you slip up your hand? Is there anyone here like that? Anyone? I'd like us to stand just now. I'd like the pianist to get ready to sing and play a few verses of all hail the power of Jesus name. Page number 45. Father, help us, I pray, to give all the praise and the glory and honor in our lives to Jesus Christ. Lord, we're not worthy, but you are. And I pray that we would be more, it would be a song, but then it would be more than a song. It would be a life. And it would be an every moment passion where we seek in our marriage, in our home, in our work, in our church, and in our daily life to show you the worthiness that you are so worthy of, the glory that you so are due. And I pray this in Jesus' name as she gives the song and we begin to sing.